Good morning. Thanks for being here this morning. My name is DJ. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity, and this morning it will be my privilege to lead us in our study of God's Word together. So turn with me to the book of Philemon. We will be in the one and only chapter of Philemon, uh, looking at the second half of the chapter, verses 13 through 25. So this is part two of a two-week study in Philemon, looking at reconciliation in a broken world. What does it look like for relationships to be repaired in Christ through what God has done for us? and what God continues to do in and through us in the world. Uh, If you didn't get a listening guide on your way in, a little piece of paper that has some space for notes, uh, has the text in it, will help you follow along. You can slip your hand up and Alex will make sure that you get one of those from the back uh, as you find your way to the book of Philemon. So for those of you who were here last week, remember we looked at the foundational reality that makes true reconciliation possible, the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has given his son for us to reconcile us to himself out of our sin, out of our darkness into his light. And that reconciliation spurs us on then to become ambassadors and ministers of reconciliation in the world, urging people to be reconciled to God and also working for reconciliation between those of us in the church, men and women who have experienced broken relationships, experiencing now forgiveness and restoration and wholeness in Christ. So we looked at the big picture last week of what reconciliation looks like. This week, we're gonna dig down into the details in the second half of this book. Because it's real easy to say, Christians should be pursuing reconciliation. But what does that look like when you're down in the trenches? What does that look like in the nitty gritty of life? There's a famous song by Johnny Cash called A Boy Named Sue. And in this song, it's about a man who ends up reconciling with his absentee father who gave him his terrible name. Uh, And as the story goes, these two men come upon each other in a saloon and the the boy realizes that this is his father and he's the guy who gave him the awful name and he's vowed his entire life to find the man who gave him his terrible name, Sue, and kill him. And so the two of them end up in a bar fight uh, and through this bar fight, they they eventually end up coming to terms and, and reconciling to one another Um, but it gets downright ugly. One of the lines in the song talks about that they're down there rolling around on the ground, kicking and gouging in the mud and the blood and the beer. And so this morning, I've titled the sermon Reconciliation in the Mud, Blood, and Beer. What does reconciliation look like when you get down in those kind of details? Because while we're not gonna advocate the type of reconciliation that that song puts forth, like I'm not gonna say you should go out and get in a bar fight this afternoon with someone who's wronged you previously. There is something that this song gets absolutely right, and that is that reconciliation is messy. It's not neat and tidy and sanitary with a pretty little bow on it. Reconciliation is ugly. It involves hurt. It involves pain. It involves brokenness. And so how do we practically take these big picture truths that we learned last week and put them into action when we find ourselves down in the mud and blood and beer? Well, Paul continues his exhortation to his friend Philemon, and we're going to see some key truths in these few verses that are going to be very helpful to us. Truths to help us understand how to practically work for reconciliation in our own broken relationships and how to play the part that Paul does here and be a peacemaker who works for reconciliation in the relationships of other people that we care about. These are the nuts and bolts that are gonna help us follow the blueprint that we were given last week in the first half of the book. So let's look at Philemon chapter one. We're gonna read verses 13 through 25. 
And then we'll jump in and look at this in more detail. So Paul says to Philemon in verse 13, I would have been glad to keep him, him being Onesimus, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but as more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he's wronged you at all, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray as we continue in study. Our God and Father, we come to you this morning, and we humbly ask that what we know not, you would teach us. What we have not, you would give us. What we are not, you would make us by the power of your spirit. Father, we know you are able to reconcile all things. And so we ask for that power and strength in our lives and the lives of those around us. In Christ's name, amen. All right, we're jumping right here into the middle. So let's give a brief recap. And I know it's rather uh, frightening when you hear a pastor say a brief recap, but I promise we're gonna stay brief. A brief recap of where we've been so far, of the setup of this book. So Paul is writing this to one of his friends and converts in the faith, Philemon. Philemon and his family are leaders in the local church in the town of Colossae. His son is a budding pastor. They host part of the church in their house. So Philemon is a man who is a godly man, an influential man in the church. And Paul is writing to him on behalf of one of his former slaves, Onesimus. Onesimus ran away, was an escaped slave from Philemon's house years before, went on the run, lived as a fugitive for many years, somehow made it to Rome and encountered Paul in his imprisonment. And Paul shares the gospel with Onesimus. Onesimus is converted. He becomes a Christian. He starts following Jesus. His life is transformed. And so now Paul is sending Onesimus back to Philemon and urging the two men to reconcile and telling them that the gospel provides the foundation that they need in order to live a reconciled life. Paul says he commands reconciliation. The, the, The gospel requires this. But rather than Paul issuing a command, which he says he could do, he says, I prefer to appeal to you, one friend to another, one man to another. Be reconciled, pursue this. And so we left last week in verse 12 with this declaration of purpose that I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. He's sending Onesimus back to his former master. Both men have been transformed by the gospel and now he urges both of them to reconcile together. And so when we talked last week, about Paul's decision to appeal to Philemon rather than to command Philemon, uh, we noted that, that Paul had the authority to issue such a command, 
that the gospel requires reconciliation of these two brothers. Uh, And here in verse 13, though, we're going to see another remark by Paul to that end, this notion that, that reconciliation is required, but Paul is aiming for something deeper than just skin deep obedience. He wants more than just Philemon to do this because he likes Paul and he wants to be obedient to a command. Paul is aiming for Philemon's heart in this matter. Look at verse 13. It says, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. So Paul says that he would have been glad to just keep Onesimus with him in Rome as a fellow laborer and servant for the gospel. If you remember last week, we actually said that humanly speaking, this would have been the easiest course of action for everybody involved right? Onesimus has this new life established in Rome with Paul. Philemon and his family are doing very well back in Colossae as leaders in the church. These guys can continue to serve the Lord in the places where they are and not have to really cross paths and not have to dig up old hurts, not have to deal with everything that's come from what happened years and years ago. It would have been the easy way to go. But remember, God's purpose for us in Christ is not what is easy, God does not promise to do for us that which will be easy. He promises to do for us that which will make us more like Jesus. So if Paul had kept Onesimus with him, continuing to partner together for the gospel in Rome, there would have been peace between these two men. There would have been peace between Philemon and Onesimus. But it would have been a forced peace. It would have been the result of circumstances keeping them apart. It would have been the result of of this coercion of Paul and not bringing them back together. It wouldn't have been genuine. It wouldn't have been real and it wouldn't have been something that flows from the heart. And Paul doesn't want Philemon to exercise a goodness that is the product of circumstances here. In verse 14, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. Paul wants a reconciliation that flows from the heart. He's targeting Philemon's heart. In this whole letter, this whole appeal, this whole plea is aimed squarely at the heart of his friend. Reconciliation is like all the other good works that Christians are called to. They can't be coerced. You can't make somebody holy. You can't make somebody obedient to God. Neither can I. It's not within our power. When striving for holiness, we must always target the heart. We must always appeal to somebody's heart because it is the heart that produces the obedience and the goodness and the holiness that God requires. Think back to what Jesus himself said. He talked about the mouth speaking from the abundance of the heart, that what is inside within you is what will ultimately what is ultimately what will drive what you do on the outside. And so whereas our human tendencies is to look at the outside and clean up our outward appearance to make sure that we're we're putting on a good face or we're doing the right things when everybody's watching, what God tells us, what Christ tells us is target the heart. You get the heart right and it will affect everything else. And so that kind of obedience, that kind of change can't be made to happen by outside forces in this world. Reconciliation cannot be coerced. So how does this affect the way that we pursue reconciliation? This knowledge that obedience must flow from the heart. It can't be something that's coerced from the outside. Well, in myself, this looks like making sure that I'm striving for Christ-likeness in all things, not just when people are looking. 
And that's a truth that I think we all know to be true. I don't think I'm, I'm saying anything new that you haven't heard before there. But in terms of reconciling relationships, ask yourself this question. Uh, are you content and eager to reconcile relationships that you could derive obvious benefit from, but you're not really concerned to go the extra mile for reconciliation when it's somebody who doesn't have anything to offer you or who, frankly, you don't really like that much? Right? If there's advantage to a relationship being reconciled, do you go for it? Do you put that same effort and energy into quickly seeking rec reconciliation when it's a fringe relationship, when it's somebody who's not important by worldly standards, when it's somebody who's, you know, you wouldn't be all that broken up if you didn't have to spend every other week with them from now on. Like, it's a relationship that, frankly, you feel like you're okay to lose. Is your reconciliation shaped and based on outward factors or on the reality of who you are in Christ? If you work for peace among other people, looking to help pursue reconciliation among your friends and neighbors, then what this means is, is you, don't, you don't want the kind of reconciliation that just says everybody hug and make up, right? So if anybody here is a parent or has ever been a kid, you're familiar with this breed of reconciliation where you know maybe you're a kid and you get in a fight with your siblings and your parents just tell you, all right, now say you're sorry, everybody hug and make up. And poof, everyone's reconciled and there is peace in the house again, even though the kids still look like they want to murder each other in their sleep. That's not the kind of reconciliation that we're going for. Reconciliation isn't simply being civil on the outside while we still seethe with anger and resentment on the inside. There's another word for that called sin. God wants a reconciliation that is from the heart, that, that doesn't just put on a happy face while still seething on the inside. And so when we're playing the part of a peacemaker, we need to make sure we're targeting people's hearts, not just trying to arrange things so everybody looks and acts civilly on the outside. We want to be peacemakers who target the heart, not just content to clean up the outward appearance of a relationship. Reconciliation can't be coerced. It must come from the heart. And that is the central reason why Paul makes an appeal to Philemon rather than a command to Philemon, even though a command would be appropriate. I think that, that is something we need to remind ourselves over and over. It would have been appropriate for Paul to command, just like as a parent, you can command your kids, you should apologize and reconcile. You must do this. It is what is required of you. But Paul knew that the more effective way to see the kind of change that he desired was through an appeal, was for, through pointing out, Philemon, you must do this. This is good for you. It's good for him. It's what the gospel calls you to. Reconciliation cannot be coerced. Don't be content to just clean up the outward trappings of the relationship. In fact, Paul points out in verse 15 that the outward trappings of the relationship are never going to be the same anyway. The relationship is going to be transformed because reconciliation, by its very nature, transforms relationships. Look at verse 15. Paul says, For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but as more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord." Paul says, your relationship is going to be fundamentally different, Philemon. It's not going to be just the same as it was. In fact, he says, maybe this is God's whole purpose in what has happened between the two men, that Philemon would gain back an eternal brother in place of the slave that he once had. 
Now, one quick side note to notice. This isn't the main point of the text, but it's worth pointing out here because it's a mistake I think we can make very often and be tempted to, at least I am. So I'm gonna say it to you. We're big believers in God's sovereignty here at Trinity, right? God is in control of all things. We just talked in Daniel 50,000 times about God's sovereignty over everything. And we know and believe Romans 8, 28. God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But I want you to be careful of the temptation to definitively assert what God's purpose is in a given situation when we aren't told what God's purpose is. Why do I say that? Well, because this is Paul here, the great apostle, the author of most of the New Testament, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says that in verse 15, perhaps this is why you were parted from each other so that you might experience this kind of reconciliation. Paul says, perhaps this was God's whole purpose. God hasn't told us, this is exactly why I did this. Paul says, it makes sense. It seems to, to, uh, to reflect the character of God. We seem to see wisdom in it. It would make sense if this is God's reason. But Paul doesn't definitively declare, even though he's writing under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, he doesn't declare, Philemon, this is the whole reason that God did this. So I say that to say, be careful in pontificating about God's purposes and things when we're not told that, when we don't know for sure. Let's be like Paul and let's say, hey, perhaps this is what God's doing in all of this in your life. Maybe it is. It seems to make sense. I don't know though. I'm not God. All right? Side note, soapbox is over. Let's get back to the main point. Um, But I know that's a, a temptation for me as I look at my circumstances and I say, God, what are you trying to do here? And then when I see something that looks like the reason, like, oh, this must be the reason. But then if I get that wrong, I'm inevitably disappointed again. We need to have hearts of humility that say, perhaps this is what God's doing. Let's trust him, but be very wary before you tell somebody else, hey, here's why God's doing this in your life. You don't know. All right, so back to the main point. Paul is saying, that in Philemon taking Onesimus back, their relationship is going to be transformed on a fundamental level, right? He was parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant. Some of your translations might say slave, same word in Greek. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, how much more so to you? Philemon lost Onesimus as a slave. He's gaining him here as much more as a brother in Christ. Last week, we talked a bit about the awesome wonder of how God has transformed our position in Christ, that we're no longer on the outside. We're no longer sinners in rebellion against him, but we have been elevated to be younger brothers. We're Jesus's kid brothers when we are brought into the faith, co-heirs with him, sharing in his riches, sharing in all the good things that God is doing in this world through Christ. What an incredible change that you, by your very nature, at your very core, are not who you used to be anymore. And your status is different. Your relationship with God is different. Your relationship with others in the church is different. Everything is changed. Well, the gospel brings about a similar level of transformation into the lives of men and women and their relationships with one another. The barriers that exist between us in this world, social, racial, national, economic, and any others you care to dream up, they aren't just able to be overcome by the gospel and the unity that the gospel creates. They are obliterated by it. They do not matter anymore. 
God has made us into one body with one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And the gospel has the power to transform relationships and put them out the other side looking nothing like they did when they came in. The gospel transforms relationships. Paul says Philemon is gaining Onesimus back not as a slave, but as far more than a slave, as a beloved eternal brother. What he's saying is here, here is that the master-slave relationship is absolutely nonsensical in the face of the transformation that's experienced. You can't just put everything back in the box again. If Paul sends Philemon, or if Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon and says, all right, he's gonna be your slave again. He's just coming back to work in your house, put everything back the way it was. These guys are brothers. In what sense does it make any sense at all for Philemon to own Onesimus, to treat him as a slave when he's his brother? He's an eternal brother. There's a family bond that's forged there. Jesus, when he was on the earth, talked about how we are no longer slaves or servants of God because he says, a master doesn't tell his slave his reasoning why he's doing what he's doing. He says, no, I tell you, you are sons. You are brought into the inner circle. You are heirs. Everything that the master has is yours. That same kind of transformation is what is coming into Philemon and Onesimus's life here. It wouldn't make sense to try to go back to the way that things were. Interestingly, this is an interesting point to look at when a lot of skeptics bring up the fact and they they decry the Bible here because they believe that the Bible is okay with slavery, right? They look at the Bible and they say, well, hey, the Bible's fine with slavery. It it says slaves obey your masters, all this kind of stuff. So how how can I follow a God who is okay with slavery? And that's really a surface reading of the text. It doesn't deal with stuff like this. The Bible doesn't call for the abolition of slavery outright. That's true. And the Bible does give provisions for how to live in a master and slave world. It does give provisions in the book of Ephesians, speaking to the church, how masters should relate to slaves, slave relate to masters. But the Bible also makes provisions for divorce in the Old Testament law of Moses. And that's not because the Bible and God are okay with divorce. It's because this is a world that's wrecked by sin. And God speaks to us through his word, Not in the world as we would like it to be. He speaks to us in the world where we are. Jesus, when he was given questions about divorce and remarriage by the Pharisees trying to trap him and pin him into a corner, he said that Moses didn't give you this command on divorce and remarriage because it was okay. He said he gave it to you because of your hardness of heart. God realized this world is a messed up place and people are going to be messed up people. They're gonna deal with sin and its consequences. And so here are some some guidelines and some rules to help you walk in this imperfect world. But what Jesus said is initially what God said from the beginning is you shall leave your father and mother and hold fast to your wife and the two shall become one flesh. That's God's design. That's what God desires. We can kind of see the same thing in the master-slave relationship here. God doesn't just call for the abolition of slavery overnight. He makes provisions for how they, they should function in this world. But the principle that we see right here in this verse no longer as a slave, but as more than a slave, as a beloved brother. This principle is what ultimately turned the idea of slavery on its head in the world. Right? The abolition of slavery came in the Western Christian world because the abolitionist movement was largely led by people who began to understand this principle, this idea. The idea that is, uh, that's codified in one of the songs that we're going to be singing a lot over the next month, O Holy Night, Chains Shall He Break. Why? Because the slave is our brother. 
that when we understand that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, knit together forever, the notion of master and slave, it doesn't fit. It doesn't work. You know, I love that song. It's one of my favorite hymns. And I love that line. I didn't realize until preparing for this sermon that that song is actually a translation of a poem that was originally written in French. Uh, and so the author, John Sullivan Dwight, who was credited with the English version of O Holy Night, really he just wrote translated lyrics from the original French. If you translate that line in the original French as closely as possible without the poetic license that is taken there by Dwight, uh, it says, he sees a brother where there was only a slave. Love unites those that iron had chained. Isn't that, isn't that cool? That, that's a great way of looking at this, that where Philemon initially saw a slave, Christ sees a brother and is transforming that relationship, changing it at a fundamental level. You can't put it back in the box again. The seeds, the principles that are here are what ultimately led to the abolition of slavery in the Western world. And you might say, well, it took long enough. And it, it did take a long time. But Jesus said to expect that kind of change in this world, right? This is how Jesus told us the kingdom of God would transform the world. It would be like yeast working slowly through a batch of dough. It would be like a mustard seed that starts out as a really small little seed and eventually becomes the biggest bush in the entire garden. This is how God's kingdom works. And with these revolutionary seeds planted right here in this small little book in the New Testament, the tree that would eventually choke out slavery in its awful form in the Western world began to grow. And so when we look at God's word, when we see the transformative nature of the gospel, we can see that, that in this instance between masters and slaves, it's not that the Bible says, hey, this is great and it's fine, just keep running with it. No, God has given us the seeds of total transformation, of revolutionary change. And it began to work itself out in the lives of Philemon and Onesimus. They've both had their hearts transformed by the gospel. And so the gospel also transforms the very nature of their relationship, the way they relate to, to one another. Their relationship, part two, is not gonna be just a happier version of part one. It's something entirely new, entirely different, because now they are brothers. But the nature of their relationship isn't the only practical consideration that needs to be addressed, right? I mean, it's one big question. If you're going to say, all right, he was your slave. I'm sending him back to you. Do we go back to the way things were? No, you don't. This is something new. He's no longer a slave. He's more than that. He's your brother. But there's other practical considerations that need to be addressed as well. What about the specific wrongs that were committed in the breaking of their relationship? What about the hurts? What about the accusations that could be levied, maybe from both sides against one another? How do you deal with that when you're working it for reconciliation? This might be the hardest question for us practically. Because usually when you're trying to reconcile with someone, it's the specific wrongs that started the whole mess to begin with that are the hardest things to deal with, the hardest things to get over, to move past. How do we do that? Paul understood this was a very real factor. It's likely, in fact, that Onesimus had stolen from Philemon when he fled. Like We talked a little bit last week. Runaway slaves were not viewed highly at all. It would have been very, very difficult for Philemon. He would have lived a fugitive's life. So it's most likely that when he fled Philemon's house, he probably took a little bit of his master's wealth of a little bit of his belongings in order to make his way in the world. It's, so now that these two men are, are coming back together, how are we supposed to look at that? Like, is that supposed to be ignored? Is Philemon supposed to just sweep it under the rug, pretend it never happened? No, sin has consequences. 
Sin always inflicts a toll on others. How is that cost to be paid? There is a cost with reconciliation, and it must be paid every time. Paul in verse 17, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything. So Paul is putting right out here, I know it's quite possible that there is sin that needs to be dealt with. There is wrong and loss that you have suffered as a result of this relationship. Reconciliation always has a cost. I want you to hear that very carefully. Reconciliation always has a cost. Because reconciliation at its core is about forgiveness. And forgiveness is very costly. And that might come as a surprise to you. Because I think in our culture, we have this notion that forgiveness is cheap, right? That forgiveness is just making stuff go away when serious wrongs have been committed. As a brushing aside, as a sweeping things under the rug. But nothing could be further from the truth. That's not really what forgiveness is. It always involves a cost to be paid every single time. The question at the core of forgiveness is this. Will you exact that cost from the person who has wronged you or will you shoulder it and bear it yourself? Every time you are presented with an opportunity to forgive, that is fundamentally the question that you're asking. There's a cost involved. Are you gonna make sure the other person pays it? Or are you going to take it upon yourself? Let's illustrate that. Let's start with a really easy example to see that. Let's say that I steal 20 bucks from you. And I take that 20 bucks and I go blow it on a couple of six packs. And I drink those six packs all in one night. And then I feel really, really bad about the whole thing. And so the next day I come to you and I apologize. And I say, I'm really sorry that I stole the 20 bucks. Um, and it's gone now. You got a couple ways that you can proceed. You can either A, ask me to pay you the 20 bucks back. Or B, you cannot ask me to pay you the 20 bucks back. Either way, someone's incurring a cost. If you ask me to pay you back, then I'm going to be out the 20 bucks that I'm going to have to use to pay you back. If you choose not to ask me to pay you back, it's not that you're just sweeping it under the rug and making the cost go away. What are you doing? You're bearing it because then you're out the 20 bucks. You don't have any, any money at that point. You've lost in this transaction. When wrongs are committed, loss is incurred. And when loss is incurred, someone has to bear that cost. You can either take it from me or you can bear it yourself. This holds true even when there's not money involved. It's really easy to see it in a case like that because there's actual cash cost involved. But even when we're talking about other things, the same thing remains. Let's say that you have a fight with a friend or maybe even a spouse You say something you shouldn't have said, words are exchanged, maybe something else, and somebody ends up hurt by this whole thing. Probably both sides end up deeply hurt. The other person has hurt you by their words or their actions. You feel anger and resentment because of the brokenness that's that's happened in the midst of this relationship. Well, you can do one of two things with that. You can desire that they feel something of the pain that they have caused, inflicting it on them with with a harsh word or with vengeful actions of your own. You can say, I feel hurt. I want you to be hurt too. Or you can be the one to shoulder all of the hurt and not extract anything from them in return. There's still cost because you can't put Humpty Dumpty back in the box again, right? Or back together again. You know what I mean. When, When hurt has happened, when pain has been inflicted, you can't make it go away. You can't undo a wrong. 
And so that cost hangs out there for someone to bear. You can either say, I'm gonna make you feel that hurt, or you can say, I'll, I'll own it all and I'll forgive and I will not treat you in kind. I won't give you what you deserve. Think of the supreme example of forgiveness, God himself. When God reconciled us to himself in Christ, when he forgave us, he didn't just sweep our sin under the rug. It wasn't cheap. No, he chose in Christ to bear the cost of it himself. Rather than extracting and exacting it from us, he says, I will bear the fullness of the hurt and the pain and the shame. I will drink the cup dry. Christ bears the cost on our behalf through his death and in our resurrection unites us to him. Forgiveness is costly. And right, God is our paradigm for understanding what forgiveness should look like. If you want to know how to forgive, you look at Christ, right? The Bible says, forgive as God in Christ has forgiven you. So we look at the pattern that God has set out. That's the way that I'm to forgive others. And so because of that, we should expect forgiveness to be costly. If it was costly for God, why would we think it would be cheap for us? Forgiveness and reconciliation always involves a cost. The question is, will you exact the cost from the one who has wronged you or will you choose to shoulder it and bear it yourself? Remember this truth the next time you have the opportunity to forgive someone, but you resist doing it because it hurts. It will always hurt. That's the nature of forgiveness. Praise God that he did not turn back from forgiving us when it hurt, but he saw it through. He died, he rose, he reconciled us to himself. Reconciliation bears the cost of wrong. That is the price that has to be paid in order to forgive. It's the price that God paid for us in Christ, and it's the same price that we are going to be called to extend to others when hurt and reconciliation enters into our relationships. I found that one practical way to remind yourself of this reality is simply by using the language of forgiveness in your relationships. What do I mean by that? Well, let me tell you something. The next time that you are wronged, whether it's by a friend by your spouse, your kids, and the one who wrongs you comes to you and says, I'm sorry, what are you usually, what's the, the natural thing to say in our culture to that? It's okay. Don't say it's okay. Strike that straight out of your vocabulary. It might seem casual and simple and innocent, but I would say it's anti gospel. Because what's the implication of it's okay? What are you doing when you say it's okay? You're minimizing what's happened. You're, you're taking the focus and saying it's not really a big deal what you did. It's, it, it is a big deal. Sin is a big deal. Next time you're tempted to say, it's okay, instead say, I forgive you. Because I forgive you acknowledges that there is hurt. It acknowledges that there is wrong. It doesn't try to brush it under the rug, but it says, I, I'm acknowledging that it's there, but I'm gonna eat that. I'm gonna bear that. I'm not going to take it from you in turn. Saying it's okay minimizes. Saying I forgive you acknowledges the reality that is there. When you use that language, it's going to be awkward, especially at first. Because frankly, in our culture, we have made such a practice 
of avoiding confrontation and minimizing wrong so that we don't have to deal with conflict. And I would suggest to you that the reason that is is because our culture does not know what to do with guilt. And so when guilt enters into a situation, we are frightened of it and we do everything we can to get rid of it as quickly as possible because we don't know what to do with it. As Christians, we know exactly what to do with guilt. We know exactly where to go with it. Lean into that. Own it. Don't minimize it. And when you have the, the, the chance into your relationships, speak a word of gospel-saturated forgiveness. When you start using language like that, it's a great opportunity to talk about why you use that language and what it means that God has forgiven us in Christ. So in playing peacemaker here, notice how Paul deals with this question of cost. Notice how he deals with this question of forgiveness in verse 17 and 18. 18, he says, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Paul says, if he's done anything wrong, charge it to me. I will pay for this. Look at what he's modeling for Philemon here. Paul is saying, I'm willing to suffer wrong and loss myself if it brings the two of you back together. This is how important this question, this idea of reconciliation is. He even uses his own signature, if you will, in verse 19. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. If you've studied many of Paul's letters, you'll notice that a lot of times this comes up at the end, this language of I'm writing this with my own hand. It's believed that Paul had very poor eyesight, that he had a degenerative condition, that he was slowly going blind over the course of his earthly ministry. And so because of that, he usually had a secretary write his letters on his behalf. He would dictate the letter, someone else would write them down. But usually at the end of one of his letters, as he's making his personal greetings, he would take the pen himself and he usually would say, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. In one of his letters, he even says, look what large letters I write with my own hand. In other words, I can't see, so I'm making this really big. But it's a mark of personal um, investment and, and emotional investment in this. And so he says here, if he's wronged you at all, charge it to me. I'm writing this with my own hand. This is a big deal. This is important. This matters to me. But notice that Paul doesn't actually expect Philemon to collect on this offer. Right? He says, I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Paul's willing to suffer hurt and suffer loss in order to reconcile the relationship. But he's got a pretty good hunch that Philemon's not gonna exact that cost from him. He notes that Philemon owes him his very soul from a human perspective. Paul is the one who introduced Philemon to Christ. And so Paul is saying, if it weren't for me, humanly speaking, you wouldn't know the Lord. You'd still be lost in your sin. Here's the idea that Paul's playing on here. He knew that Philemon would balk at exacting the cost from Paul. Right, if Paul says, hey, he stole 500 bucks from you, you charge it to me, I'll pay it back. He knew that Philemon said, no, 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 there's no way I can take that from you. And his point then is, if you're willing to, to not take the cost from me, then do the same for him. Forgive Onesimus. Bear the cost for him as well. When you're willing to give of yourself in order to make peace among others, it's gonna get people's attention. Right? Paul understood in interjecting himself in the middle of this broken relationship, he had to be willing to bear some cost of his own. 
Now again, it's not always going to involve cash money that needs to be repaid, but you might risk one or both of the parties that you're trying to help taking their frustration out on you. Misunderstandings, anger, resentment, those things are not, they're not weapons that have very sharp focus on them. They are blunt instruments. And so when you get involved in a situation where that kind of anger and resentment is getting swung around, you're likely to take a shot yourself. Go into it knowing that. But understand, reconciliation is a costly business. It always requires a cost to be paid. And so whether that's you in one of your interpersonal relationships or whether that's you wading into someone else's mess, you're going to have to be willing to bear cost, to bear wrong in order to forgive and in order to work for forgiveness. But as Paul draws to a close, notice what he says in verse 21. He's not sitting around biting his nails, nervously awaiting what Philemon will do. He says, confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. He expects that, that Philemon will reconcile. He expects that he's going to welcome Onesimus into his house. He makes his appeal rather than a command. And he says, and I know you're going to do even more than I suggest to you. How can Paul know this? Because Philemon's just that great of a guy. Well, it seems like he's a good guy, but Paul knows this because the gospel is present in Philemon's life. Because reconciliation is what Christians do. Reconciliation is the Christian's pleasure. He knows that Philemon will be eager to reconcile because of what God is doing in his heart. He knows he'll go above and beyond what Paul is saying. Reconciliation is the Christian's pleasure. And I mean that in the truest Chick-fil-A sense of the word, right? When you go to Chick-fil-A, everything is their pleasure. They will give you extra Chick-fil-A sauce. They will take stuff out to your table. They'll go get you a refill and everything. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. We've long joked, you could probably go slap one of the cashiers in the face and it would still be their pleasure because it's what they do. It's what they are. To be a Chick-fil-A employee is to be someone who's just going to go the extra mile to make sure that you have a great day. If you're like, when you walk into a Chick-fil-A, you don't ever have to wonder if you're going to get good service inside, do you? I mean, have you ever been to a bad Chick-fil-A? You, one, okay, don't, don't ruin my analogy. If you go to a McDonald's or a Burger King or a Wendy's, it can kind of be a crapshoot. You don't know what you're going to get. I've been in some Wendy's that are great. I've been in some Wendy's that are pretty terrible. But with Chick-fil-A, I have really good confidence that when I go in, it's going to be a great experience. Paul saying that reconciliation in the church kind of works the same way. He has confidence that Philemon is going to go above and beyond because that's who he is now. Not because Philemon's a great guy, but because the gospel is true and his heart's been transformed and it is now his pleasure to work for reconciliation. It's his joy. When we've, begin, when we've been forgiven much by God, we will find ourselves eager to forgive others. Right? Jesus told a whole parable about that. Forgiveness breeds a willingness and a desire to extend that forgiveness to other people. Now, again, that doesn't mean it's easy. That doesn't mean it's not painful. That doesn't mean that we're not going to share or shed our share of bitter tears in the process. But we will desire reconciliation. When your heart's been transformed by Christ, you're not going to be content to live at enmity with your brothers and sisters. And so Paul expects Philemon, he says, I know what you're going to do because I know who indwells you. I know that you're in Christ. God has made us new creations in Jesus Christ. 
Right? I said at the beginning, this is a book about one of the hard cases, and it is. A master-slave relationship being rebuilt into brothers in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's serious stuff. That's serious wrong. It's serious cost. The deck is stacked against this relationship. But this is not a book about spiritual superheroes. Right? This is not a book about guys who are just like the perfect Christians and they can reconcile, but this isn't accessible to the rest of us. These people are saints, but saint isn't a super class of spirituality like the Catholic Church teaches it is. If you are in Christ, you are a saint. You are holy, set apart, created for good works that God prepared beforehand for you to walk in them. And one of those good works is reconciliation. One of those good works is forgiveness. This is a real book about real people. And we see that coming out here in these last few verses. Paul is closing a personal letter. Verse 22, at the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping through your prayers that I'll be graciously given to you. Paul's in prison, remember? But he's saying, pray for me. And don't just pray, but get a guest room ready, because when I get out, I'm coming to see you, Philemon. And he sends greetings from Epaphras, from Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, Some of these people we know well, Mark and Luke. I mean, you've heard gospels written by these two men. Some of these people like Aristarchus are only mentioned a couple of times in the book of Acts. Some of these people like Demas end up making shipwreck of their faith and we find out walk away from the faith entirely. This is a real book involving real people changed by a real God and doing the real work of reconciliation. This isn't a book about superheroes. It's a book about you. It's a book about me. When average, everyday Christians, saved by God's grace, pursue forgiveness and reconciliation in their average, everyday relationships, extraordinary things will happen because we serve an extraordinary God. Let me tell you another story about another letter that was written. 50 years after the letter that we just read was written to Philemon, another Christian leader wrote another letter. His name was Ignatius. He was a pastor in this church in the city of Antioch, an influential writer and the leader in the Christian community, much like Paul was. Ignatius was arrested, and he was being taken from Antioch to Rome, where he would eventually be executed for his faith and for following Christ. And on his way from Antioch to Rome, he begins writing letters. And he sends them to the various churches and to the people that he knows there, encouraging them in their faith, much like Paul does in his own uh, pastoral relationships. And one of the churches he writes to is the church at Ephesus. So if we're familiar with the letter of the, Ephes- the church at the Ephesians, the same deal. This church, 50 years later, is still in existence. And Ignatius writes many things to encourage the Ephesian church. And one of the things that he does is he addresses their pastor, one of their pastors. And he praises this man. He says, and I quote, that he is a man of inexpressible love. That pastor's name? Onesimus. Now, we don't know definitively that it's the same guy, but the signs fit. In fact, Ignatius even makes the same kind of joke about his name that Paul makes here. Remember, Onesimus' name literally translates as useful. The word itself means useful. And so Paul, when he was talking to Philemon in the text we read last week, he said, hey, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is useful indeed. A Paul pun. Well, Ignatius makes the same pun in his letter. He notes that this man Onesimus is Onesimus in name, Onesimus in nature. It's quite possible and in fact probable that this man goes on to be 
a pastor, a man of inexpressible love, a man who is influential in bringing people to Jesus because of this act of forgiveness that takes place in his life. Slave to brother to pastor. Because Philemon was willing to reconcile, was willing to forgive, because Paul laid everything on the line for this runaway slave who the world thought nothing of, who was less than nothing in that culture. God can do amazing, amazing things through everyday acts of obedience. So the question comes to us, how do we need to take what we've learned these past two weeks about reconciliation and apply them to our lives? What relationships do you have that are in need of reconciliation? What people do you know who you can come between, like Paul does for Philemon and Onesimus, and work for reconciliation on their behalf? And then what kind of posture will you take in our greater culture when it comes to reconciliation? Because right? this is the elephant in the room with this whole thing is we talk a lot about reconciliation. Most commonly in our culture, it's racial reconciliation. We have a book here about reconciliation between individuals. How do you take that and then work for that kind of reconciliation among people groups where there have been wrongs, where there have been fractured relationships? Well, that's, that's a whole nother sermon that we really don't have time for this morning. But let me just say this. What are people groups made of? People. How do you reconcile people groups? By reconciling people. And so can you reconcile white folks and black folks in America by yourself? No. But you can be reconciled to the people of other races that you know. You can go the extra mile to show remorse for the things that have been done in the past. You don't have to repent for sins that people committed 300 years ago. But don't belittle them. Don't minimize them. Don't say it's okay when I forgive you is what was needed back then, right? The way that you work for reconciliation in a broader culture is by working for reconciliation in your personal relationships. And when the church engages in that, interpersonal, 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 when you multiply that times the thousands of Christians, the thousands of churches that are in the world, that changes cultures, Right? We're tempted in our world to want solutions that will fix things. How do we fix racial reconciliation? How do we fix the political divide in this country? How do we fix the animosity between classes, between nations, all of these different things? I don't have a solution for you. I have a gospel for you. But that is not some pie-in-the-sky reality that doesn't affect this world. When the gospel changes relationships, when it changes your relationships, when it changes even the relationships of a master and a slave, and that begins to happen over and over and over around the world and throughout time, the world changes. The mustard seed grows into a really big tree. Don't be tempted to think that because you're not influential, because you have a two-digit Twitter following, that you can't work for real change in the world. You work for real change in the world by being obedient in your everyday relationships, not by having the pithy thing to say that will make everybody think, oh, we should just love each other now. This is how God works. And so ask yourself these questions as you go about your relationships and thinking about your relationships with our culture at large. Do you approach reconciliation concerned about appearances and facades? Or do you practice a forgiveness that is deep and that is from the heart? What does success in reconciliation look like to you? Outward appearances, smiles, or a real engagement of your heart with someone who has wronged you?
Do you still see and evaluate your relationships in worldly terms? Or do you understand that the gospel can and will utterly transform them? Are you willing to be uncomfortable in your relationships with other people because you're stepping out of a comfort zone that doesn't exist anymore because the gospel has made things new. It's made a world where you're going to find deeper connection and joy and love with people who are nothing like you, people who may have wronged you. It's, again, it's painful. It's not easy. It's uncomfortable. It hurts, but it's good. Do you have that kind of heart that is ready to become uncomfortable for the sake of reconciliation? Are you ready to see your relationships transformed? Are you prepared for the cost that forgiveness will carry? Or are you pursuing and practicing a cheap grace that is not at all like the grace that God has extended to you? In this whole thing of reconciliation and all these different principles that we've looked at, to me, I think this is the most vital one, this this notion of cost and understanding that to forgive means to bear cost. That's what we're being called to. And even to be like Paul, who is willing to bear a cost that he doesn't have anything to do with, Right? When you look at sin in this world, do you think, I'm not apologizing for that, I didn't have anything to do with it. Paul says he's willing to eat cost for something that's somebody else's business. If that's what it takes to get reconciliation, he's willing to do it. Is your thought about cost something that I'm only gonna deal with my mess or are you willing to stick your neck out for other people even if it costs you something, even if it costs you everything? That's how important reconciliation was to Paul. Is it that important to you? Are you willing to suffer loss and injustice in order to bring it about? And is forgiveness and reconciliation a pleasure to you? Does it flow from your new nature in Christ? Is it something that you eagerly and joyfully desire? Not that you know it's going to be easy, but you say, I know this is going to hurt. I'm going to do it anyway because this this is who I am now. It's who God has made me. If not then one of two things needs to happen. One, maybe you need to grow and mature in your faith. Maybe this is an area that God is gonna shine the light into your heart and say, you are my son, you are my daughter, I know you, but I want you to grow in this area. I want you to be someone who desires forgiveness. Chick-fil-A employees aren't perfect on their first day in training, right? I imagine that for everything to become your pleasure, you've gotta be there for some time. It doesn't happen right away. Maybe. Christianity is the same thing. You're not gonna be perfect the moment that you come to Christ but if you don't desire reconciliation maybe it's because you need to grow and mature maybe it's because you need to be transformed maybe it's because you need to really grasp what the gospel is maybe because you're really like that servant who's who's been forgiven so much by his master that now you realize I need to go and, and forgive others as well the reason that you can forgive is because Christ has forgiven you. He has borne the cost of your sin, your rebellion, your evil, your wickedness. He's borne it on your behalf in his son, Jesus Christ, who lived, who died the death, the pain that you and I deserve, and who rose victorious over it so that we have a hope and we have a future. If you don't know that Christ, if you've not experienced that transformation, then that's where you need to begin. Remember what we talked about last week, the gospel's foundational. We can, we can find practical help. We can find practical tips. We can work through the practicalities that come up in this text of cost and of transformation and all these things. But if we don't have the gospel as our foundation, we are going to be wasting our time. 
True reconciliation only happens in Jesus Christ. And if you do not know Christ this morning, then today is the day to come to him in repentance and faith. If you want to talk more about what that looks like, talk to me, talk to Pastor Dave, talk to your community group leader, talk to your friend, and let's start a conversation about what does it mean to know Christ. If there is a matter of forgiveness and reconciliation in your life and you say, I I don't know how to put these things into practice. Like I see these truths and I know they're true and I know I want to do them, but I don't know what does that look like in, in the mud and blood and beer of my situation right here. Same thing. Come see me, see Pastor Dave, see your community group leader, and let's start to talk through these things. Let's grab coffee one day this week and say, all right, how can you take these principles and put them to play in your own life, in your own messy relationships? Let's talk about that in community group this week. How can I bring these things to bear on situations that I'm experiencing or that my friends are experiencing and I wanna help? These things matter. This is the gospel for real life. This is how reconciliation happens little by little, in a broken world because God is in the business of reconciling the world to himself and we get to play a small part in that. Let's rejoice in that together. Let's pray and then we will take communion together as a family this morning. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace to us. Thank you that you are not counting our sins against us but bore them in Christ. You are reconciling the world to yourself through him. Father, thank you that you took the cost, that you paid the price, that that you took on a responsibility that was not your own. You paid a price that should have been mine to pay, that should have been ours to pay. You did it with gladness to create a people for your own possession. And we get to benefit from that. Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your forgiveness. Help us today to be ambassadors of reconciliation, to be working in our own relationships and the relationships of those around us to be peacemakers. Father, help us to see how you transform our relationships. Don't let us regard people in this world according to the flesh any longer, but help us to see the reality of what you have done, that you have made a brother where we used to see a slave. Father, I pray that you would help us to take and to bear cost. Father, help us to forgive when it hurts that we might be like our Father in heaven who forgave us at great cost. Father, may we glorify you as people watch our lives, as they see our reconciliation, as they see our forgiveness. May it it puzzle them. May they ask questions. May they wonder. And may you make us ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us. That people might glorify our Father who is in heaven. Be with us, work in us, work through us for your glory and your name's sake. We pray in Christ's name, amen.